Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. And as you are, turn with me in your copy of the Holy Scripture to Genesis 48 this morning. Genesis 48. Countless times I have stood at an open grave with those who've lost a loved one. And at those times I read Scripture and I say a few words and I pray for God to comfort the grieving. And then I stand aside and I look across the cemetery, rows and rows of headstones that mark the place of others who have died and been buried over the years. And there is something very profound about standing in a field of the dead and thinking on one's life. There is something profound about thinking of one's life while standing in a field of the, the dead. And when, when I view life from that perspective, from the end of life perspective, I'm reminded of, of what things have very little value, material things. And when I view life from that perspective, that end of life perspective, I'm reminded of what things have great value, our eternal souls. And in Genesis 48, Jacob was standing in that proverbial graveyard. Jacob was on his deathbed. Jacob was dying and looking back over the course of his life. And from that place, Jacob's perspective on life was far different from what it was just 17 years earlier when Jacob moved his family into Egypt. You remember that when Jacob moved his family into Egypt there, he met the Pharaoh in Genesis 47, verse number 9. And he described his life in very negative terms. In fact, look with me there, Genesis 47, verse 9, perhaps just across the page. And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my pilgrimage are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their pilgrimage. And now Jacob is on his deathbed. He's looking to be buried with his father and his grandfather, according to chapter 47, verse 30. Look at 47, verse 30 now. But let me lie with my fathers. You shall carry me out of Egypt. Jacob is speaking to Joseph. And bury me in their burial place. And he, Joseph, said, I will do as you have, have said. But now J Jacob's testimony is, is different. It's one of sincere gratitude for God's care of for him all the days of his life. Chapter 48, verse 15. And he blessed Joseph and said, God before whom my father Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has fed me all my life long to this day. The angel, a reference of the angel of the Lord. I, I believe a, a Christophany here, perhaps the one with whom Jacob wrestled. The angel who has redeemed me from all evil. Bless the lads. Bless, let my name be named upon them and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the, of, of the earth. And so this morning, I propose to you that Jacob, his greatest demonstration of faith did not occur during his life, but here at the end of his life, on his deathbed. And it's now from this place that Jacob could look back and express a faith that had grown and blossomed to full maturity. And I come to this conclusion and I present you this proposition because of what the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 11. Now we know Hebrews 11 as that great hall of faith. 
the, the chapter in which great men and women of faith from the Old Testament are, are listed and some aspect of their faith is, is cited, their life of faith. And of all of the circumstances that occurred in Jacob's life, the writer to the Hebrews chose one circumstance to cite as Jacob's greatest act of faith. And it's what's recorded for us here in Genesis 48. Hebrews 11 verse 21 says of Jacob, by faith, Jacob, when he was dying, that's Genesis 48, he blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshiped, leaning on the top of his staff. And the writer to the Hebrews cited what took place in Genesis 48 as the highlight of Jacob's life of faith. And like his grandfather Abraham and like his father Isaac, Jacob died without receiving the promises. He died in Egypt. He wasn't in the promised land. Jacob's family wasn't as numerous as the sand on the seashore. There were just 70 of Jacob's family that moved with him down to, to Egypt. But yet Jacob was dying in faith, a mature faith, having learned to live and trust in the ways of God even when they couldn't be seen, the ways of God, even when they didn't make sense. And so I submit to you this morning that Jacob's faith in Genesis 48 was a mature faith. I've prepared a message by that title, Mature Faith. Let's pause for prayer and then we'll study Genesis 48 together. God in heaven, thank you for leading us all the way. At this point in our lives, you have led us, you have fed us, you have cared for us, you have protected and preserved us. And Lord, we trust you for the same in the future. And God, now as we study this portion of scripture and we learn of the life and namely now the death of Jacob, I pray that you would help us to appreciate what mature faith looks like. For I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. This morning I would ask that you set your notes aside just for now, reserve them for the end of our study. Give your attention to the scripture as I begin reading in Genesis 48, verse number one. Now it came to pass after these things that Joseph was told, indeed, your father is sick. And he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And Jacob was told, look, your son Joseph is coming to you. And Israel strengthened or Jacob strengthened himself and sat up on, his, on the bed. Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you and I will make, you a, make of you a multitude of people. That's the first promise. And give you this land to your descendants after you. That's the second promise as an everlasting possession. Now, if you think back over the course of the last many weeks as we've studied the book of Genesis, it was two different times that God appeared to Jacob at Luz or at Bethel once before Jacob departed from Canaan to seek a wife in Haran, that's chapter 28, and once after he returned to Canaan from Paden Aram, that's in chapter 35. But in both cases, God appeared to Jacob in Luz or Bethel and promised Jacob that he would become a great nation, a multitude of descendants, and that his children would possess the land of Canaan. Now here from his deathbed, Jacob addresses Joseph and he rehearses the covenant promises of God. And folks, that is an excellent demonstration of mature faith. 
such a blessing for me when I visit the saints of God when they are dying and I hear them speak of the promises of God and the faithfulness of God and the goodness of God on occasions throughout the course of their lives when God worked mightily among them. It's such a blessing for me to hear a saint of God on their deathbed rehearse those promises of God. That's mature faith. Look at verse number five. And now your two sons, Joseph... Your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. As Reuben and Simeon, they shall be mine. Your offspring, whom you beget after them, shall be yours. They will be called by the name of their brothers and their inheritance. But as for me, when I came from Paden, Rachel died beside me in the land of Canaan on the way when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. So Manasseh and Ephraim were born to Joseph in the land of Egypt. Being Joseph's sons, they were undoubtedly privileged. They were being raised as sons of Joseph, uh, who, who had the favor of Pharaoh. Manasseh and Ephraim could be sure of, of a high position in the Egyptian government, of a high place in Egyptian culture. Their future was promising. Yet their greatest hope and heritage was not to come through the Pharaoh or through Egypt, but from their grandfather Jacob, who was adopting them as his own sons in verse number five. Now follow this. Jacob's son Reuben was the oldest. Reuben was the oldest of Jacob's sons, the firstborn. However, because of Reuben's sin with Bilhah, Jacob's concubine in chapter 35, Reuben would be stripped of his birthright as Jacob confronted Reuben in chapter 49, verses 3 and 4. Turn the page, look there. Chapter 49, verse number 3. Reuben, you are my firstborn. This is Jacob speaking. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power, but (laughs) unstable as water. How about that? You're unstable as water. You shall not excel because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. And so consequently, Reuben's blessing would be taken from Reuben and given to Joseph's sons. As explained in 1 Chronicles 5, I have it before you on the screen. Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, or Jacob, he was indeed the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, as we're reading here in Genesis 48. Also then, Genesis 48, verse number 5, doesn't only mention Reuben, but also Simeon. So if the birthright is not to be given to the firstborn, Reuben, it would default to the secondborn, Simeon. If not to the secondborn, Simeon, then to the thirdborn, Levi. And and you get the picture. However, Simeon and Levi, number two and three of Jacob's sons, were guilty of the mass murder of the Shechemites in chapter 34. Therefore, Simeon and Levi would also be stripped of their birthright when Jacob confronted them about the matter in chapter 49, verses 5 through 7. Look at chapter 49, verse 5. Simeon and Levi are brothers. That's number two and three. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man in their self-will. They hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in 
Israel. So what is happening here in Genesis 48 is that Jacob on his deathbed from the graveyard, if you will, looking back, is issuing the blessing to Joseph's two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, adopting them in the place of Reuben and Simeon. Of course, this is conferred and confirmed by 1 Chronicles 5, verses 1 and 2. Now, Genesis 48, verse number 7, I read it just a moment ago, um, adds further reasons for Jacob wanting to adopt Joseph's sons, namely Rachel's premature death. Remember that Leah was Jacob's wife by chance, but Rachel was Jacob's wife by choice. And while Rachel was the younger of Jacob's wives, Rachel died prematurely on the way to Ephrath or or Bethlehem, according to verse number seven. If she hadn't have died so young, we might assume that she would have borne more sons to Jacob. And, and so the adoption of Joseph's sons, the adoption of the grandsons, Manasseh and Ephraim, as Jacob's sons, um, would, would give Jacob two more sons from Rachel, for Rachel was the mother of, of Joseph. Let's look what happens, verse number eight, chapter 48, verse eight. Then Israel saw Joseph's sons and said, who are these? And Joseph said to his father, they are my sons whom God has given me in this place. Uh, We've just been talking about them, haven't we? Um, And he said, please bring them to me and I'll bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age. Okay. So that he could not see them. Um, There in, in verse number 10. Just as, remember Isaac had poor eyesight in his old age. And he was confused as to discerning between his two sons, Jacob and Esau. Remember that? And and Isaac had a feel for the hair on their arms and listened to the sound of their voice. So also now Jacob, in his old age, his eyes are dim. He doesn't see that Joseph's sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, are, are there. They're standing there in verse number eight because Jacob's eyes are dim in verse number 10. Just a quick note about Joseph's sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. They were not little boys. There are a few clues for us to discern their age. Manasseh and Ephraim were born to Joseph before the years of famine, according to chapter 41, verse number 5. Then we know that Jacob came down to Egypt during the second year of famine. So the boys, Manasseh and Ephraim, would have been maybe two, three, four, five years old. Then we know that Jacob lived in Egypt for 17 years now before his death. And so if you do the math, Manasseh and Ephraim must have been at least 20 years old. They're grown men at this time. Jacob doesn't see them, but he wants to adopt them. And so Joseph brings them forward. In verse number 9, Jacob called for them to come near so that he could see them. Verse 10, now the eyes of Israel were dim. Jacob's eyes were dim with age so that he could not see Then Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them, embraced them, and Israel said to Joseph, I had not thought to see your face again, but in fact, God has also shown me your offspring. Very sweet picture here. If you can imagine, Jacob had resigned himself to the fact that he would never see the face of his beloved son Joseph again, but God in his grace allowed Jacob to look not only upon Joseph, but upon Joseph's sons his grandsons. Verse number 12, so Joseph brought them from beside his knees and bowed down with his face to the earth and Joseph took them both 
Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left hand, Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. Then Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, guiding his hands knowingly, for Manasseh was the the firstborn. All right, so knowing that Jacob was going to adopt Joseph's sons and bless Joseph's sons, Joseph presented Manasseh and Ephraim to Jacob in the proper order. Now picture this with me. Joseph is standing in front of Jacob, facing Jacob, son and father, Joseph and Jacob. And just as my right hand is your left side, let me make sure I understand this, and my left hand is your right side, right? We're facing each other. It's, it's inverted there. Therefore, Joseph put Manasseh the older at his left, which was Jacob's right, and Joseph put Ephraim the younger at his right, which was Joseph's left. And that was intentional so that Jacob's right hand would rest upon Manasseh the older. However, Jacob surprised Joseph by crossing hands, if you will, in verse 14. You see it there in verse 14. But he did so knowingly, intentionally, deliberately giving the first blessing to the younger Ephraim. Now, let me skip verses 15 and 16. Look at verse 17. Now, when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, so he took hold of his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. He's saying, Dad, you got it wrong here. You're mixed up. Who's the older or the younger? Verse 18. Um, and Joseph said to his father, not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused. Jacob refused and said, I know, my son. I know he also shall become a people and also shall be great, but truly his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. So when Joseph saw his father cross hands and give the preeminence to Ephraim the younger, Joseph assumed that it was a mistake and tried to correct it. But folks, do not miss this. Often in the book of Genesis, there are occasions when the younger is chosen over the older Seth was chosen over Cain, Shem over Japheth, Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau, and now Ephraim over Manasseh. Now why is that? Maybe a bit uncomfortable for us to think about it, but this is a clear principle of sovereign election and blessing. God's choosing is independent of human rank or merit. And I am not making this up to assert a system of theology, but rather in Romans chapter 9, Paul explained this phenomenon. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand. Not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Now this violates our sensibilities of justice or fairness of, or, or, or order. So what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Is this not fair? Is this not right? This arbitrary selection? Certainly not. 
Okay, so then here in Genesis 48, why did Jacob set Ephraim over Manasseh? When Manasseh was the older, Ephraim was the younger. I believe this is an evidence of Jacob's mature faith. At long last, Jacob was able to demonstrate a comprehension of God's sovereignty and selection in the outworking of his promises. Now think about this. Jacob himself was a younger Jacob and Esau, Esau, Jacob, remember these twins? And God chose Jacob, yet Jacob spent a lifetime thinking that God had chosen him over Esau because he could do more for God than Esau could do for God. And that wasn't the case at all. As I just read, Romans 9 tells us that God chose Jacob over Esau because God purposed in the independence of his own sovereignty to choose Jacob over Esau. And here's the way it works in God's economy. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. Why does God do things this way? So that no flesh can glory in his presence. There is no human earthly reason why Ephraim should have been placed above Manasseh, but that is why Jacob's action has such great significance. And that's why Hebrews 11 verse 21 cites this circumstance as the greatest demonstration of faith in Jacob's life. It's a remarkable thing. It violates all of our sensibilities. It certainly troubled Joseph. No, you've got this wrong. This is the way it ought to be. But God had different plans. And purposes. Back to chapter 48, verse 15, and he blessed Joseph. Jacob's blessing was actually to Joseph. He blessed Joseph, how so? By blessing his sons. Notice verse 15. Also, Jacob's God was the God of Abraham and Isaac. He blessed Joseph and said, God before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, walked, the God who has fed me all my life long this day. Jacob, the shepherd, recognized that God was his shepherd, the one who fed him. You see, our great shepherd makes us lie down in green pastures to feed us. He's with us when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Jacob acknowledged that God fed him and led him through all of his life's circumstance, good and bad. Verse 16 and the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. Let my name be named upon them in the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the, the earth. Jacob had previously told Pharaoh, remember back in chapter 47, verse number 9, that all the days of his life were evil. But here in chapter 48, verse 16, Jacob declared that that God was the angel who redeemed him from that evil. And I understand the, the angel here to be the pre-incarnate Christ, perhaps the one with whom Jacob wrestled back in chapter 32. The angel did not keep Jacob from experiencing evil. Certainly a lot of evil happened in, in Jacob's experience, but uh, no one has ever been spared from evil and, and trouble in this fallen world but rather the angel redeemed or delivered Jacob from that evil. And despite of our trouble and because of our trouble, God is able to deliver us and accomplish his purposes. 
You think about your life and you think of all the calamity, all the injustice that's happened in your life experience, all the evil that's around us in the world today. He is the one that is preserving us from these things. We live in a dark world, a very dark world, but yet he preserves us. And folks, someday from our deathbed, when our eyes are dim, may we be able to see with the eyes of faith and be able to look back and recount how God has preserved us and sustained us from all the evil around us. Verse 21. Verse 21, I'll go quickly now to, to wrap this up. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am dying, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you one portion above your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my, my bow. And... Folks, here's, here's how I might summarize things this way. I should have copied this for you in your notes for you to take it, but this is my, my effort to summarize and conclude what's happening here. Life for Jacob looked different from the perspective of his deathbed. In hindsight, he was able to trace the hand of God in his life, and although his physical eyes were dim, his spiritual eyes of faith could see that his life was not a long sequence of sorrows, but a, a brilliant chain of events in the sovereign plan of God. The sufferings and the trials in his life were the tools, the instruments to shape his faith. And that is the record and the testimony of Hebrews 11, verse 21, that Jacob on his deathbed had mature faith. Now, I want to leave you with three big ideas, and this is where you can go to your notes just as a point of conclusion and application. Three big ideas from all of these details. I would suggest to you, number one, mature faith does not lose sight of God's promises. Our eyesight will dim with age, but it is at that time, it's from that place that mature faith can see the promises of God as clearly as ever. Again, if I might reference Hebrews chapter 11, these all died in faith, speaking of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the rest, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off. They were assured of them. What, what, what does it mean to see something afar off being assured of it? That, that is the, the hope of the believer. That is the life of faith. They confess that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Mature faith does not lose sight of the promises of God even when they seem afar off. And perhaps you've had misgivings in your mind and your heart. What if Jesus never returns? What if it's not true? What if mature faith doesn't lose sight of God's promises. At the end of chapter 47, Jacob demonstrated that he hadn't forgotten the promises of God because he asked Joseph to bury him in Canaan, not in Egypt. Did you see that? Chapter 47, verse number 30, we read it at the beginning of our study. He knew that Canaan was God's promised destination. And folks, when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ for our eternal salvation, sometimes we lose sight of the future promises of God, the redemption of our souls, a home in heaven, eternity. Keep looking forward. Keep looking upward. 
Don't lose sight of those promises. Mature faith, secondly, is confident in the future because of blessings in the past. And a good exposition of, of Genesis 48 must stress the centrality of this blessing idea. And I've copied what one commentator has, has written. It's there in your notes. When Jacob heard that Joseph came to visit him on his sickbed or his deathbed, he strengthened himself to receive him. He rehearsed from his bed how that almighty God had blessed him. He rehearsed, I underscored that here in my notes. He rehearsed from his bed, his deathbed, how God had blessed him with a promise of a multitude of people in the land. Those are the promises. Multitude of descendants in the land of their everlasting possession. And the report and rehearsal of God's blessing Jacob in the past motivated Jacob to have confidence in the future. Folks, perhaps you are in the winter season of your life. We're all in the winter season right now, of course, it seems. But perhaps you are nearing the end of your life experience and you are tempted to falter on your deathbed. Where do you find the strength to sit up on your deathbed, as it were, as Jacob did in verse number two? Where do you find the courage to look forward with confidence? It's because a mature faith has confidence because of the blessings of the, of the past. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're the older generation among us, perhaps you're a gray head, a, a grandpa or a grandma, please tell us the stories of what God has done in the past. Like Asaph in Psalm 78, in fact, this evening, we're gonna study Psalm 78. Tell us of the works of God in the past, before there was us, so that we can remember and rehearse those blessings so that we might set our hope in God. Number three, mature faith accepts that God's ways are not man's ways. And when Jacob pronounced the blessing on Joseph's two sons, he intentionally guided his hand so that his right hand was on Ephraim's head, his left hand was on Manasseh's head, even though Manasseh was the firstborn. And Joseph wasn't happy about that because Joseph expected God to work in a certain way. But after a lifetime of learning the ways of God, Jacob understood that God's ways are not man's ways. Folks, this morning, your circumstance may seem backwards, inverted, upside down, but perhaps that's God's design. And so it takes mature faith to say, Lord, I accept what you are doing, although it makes no sense to me. Let's pray. God in heaven, thank you for the things that were written before, for the, the biblical record of the life of Jacob, where these things were written for our sake so that we might have hope and faith in you. I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us, grant us greater faith to trust you as you lead us all along life's path. And Lord, may we have mature faith to look back and to understand and accept that your ways are not our ways. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.